Good morning. It is so good to see all of you here. That kind of takes on a different meaning after you go through a week like this. It's not just a cliche, but it's good to see you, good to see you. And all through the week, it's been like, how are you? Like, sincerely, like, how are you? Are you okay? You know? It's different, right? You know what I mean? It's different. Um, So, so as Pastor Pete shared, um, we just went through one of the worst rainfall disasters in U.S. history um, by setting a record of most rainfall by a single storm. That's over four feet, that's more than some of you, <laughs> just kidding, everyone's four feet high, right? Um, that's over four feet, um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a lot of rain, and um, just going over some numbers, the number of people displaced, uh, they had to leave their homes, or they're not in their homes, or have not been in their home at one time or another, more than 33,000 people the number of people rescued, more than 72,000. Um, these could be off. I, I got it from, uh, I think, a legitimate, a legitimate website. But uh, number of homes damaged, more than 20,000. Uh, even just uh, around my neighborhood, uh, going through one of the you know, nearby neighborhoods, the damage is just astronomical. Like every home... Just a huge pile of, of, uh, of drywall, flooring, beds, couches, furniture, all sorts of things. Um, and it's just a sad sight to see. Uh, fences, all the fences being knocked down. Um, and this one, this one kind of hurts a little. The no, number of people who died, I think it's at 46. And, and uh and the authorities are just afraid of how many more bodies will be discovered as, you know, submerged cars and homes, you know, as the water reside, uh, recedes, how many more bodies will start floating up, and, and they're afraid of that. Um, but yeah, young, little ones, old ones, um, just just devastating. And, and, and perhaps maybe one of, some of you here are in, included in that number of displaced or rescued or homes damaged. Some of you, maybe your friends at school, uh, your teachers, um, people you work with, uh, church friends, uh, small group, tree group members, um, even maybe your Bible study teacher here, grandparents, relatives. Um, maybe we all know someone who's, who's going through some suffering. And so how, how do we process this? Because it's been such an emotional roller coaster, you know what I mean? Like uh, fear, uh, nervousness, you know, anxiety at the beginning stages, uh, gratitude, um, 
compassion, uh, heartbreak, um, maybe even some joy. Um, but yeah, all sorts of kinds of things. And so how do we process through this? Um, if, you were, if you were directly affected by Hurricane Harvey, how, how do we get through this? How do you get through this? If you've lost everything, how can I put my faith in God? How can I trust in God and believe that he's good? Because, to be honest, deep inside you may be tempted to be angry at him, uh, to blame God, to doubt God, to turn away from God. And that's, that's the reality. So how do we hold on? How do we hold on? Uh, if you weren't directly affected by the storm, uh, how do we answer those who do not have faith in God? How do we tell them uh, to believe in God and to trust in God? Uh, how do we encourage those who are suffering to put their faith in God? Because it's easy to be comfortable. It's easy to just not get involved. It's easy to stay back and just, and just watch the tragedy go on. It's easy to be selfish and just say, hey, I'm okay. But how can we be the church? How can we not miss the opportunity to make God known and point others to him? How can we do that uh, as followers of Christ? So uh, I want to go over just uh, some tools to help us. And um, we're going to turn to Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 18 to 25. Romans 8, 18 to 25. And I'm going to pray as you're opening there. You can go ahead and open and, and listen uh, and pray with me. Romans 8, 18 to 25. Father God, um, we, I, just, I just need to pray. We need to pray. I, I forgot to pray. Um, and so we're going to pray now and, and ask just for your presence, your spirit to help us to uh, dig through this passage and hear your truths uh, and, and receive just uh, the ministry of your word spoken to us, written for us. Uh, help us to hear and listen and process and understand your truth so that we may be equipped to have faith and to even have faith for those who cannot have faith right now. And we pray for, I pray for myself as I share um, uh, the sermon that it's not about me. It's not about if I say the right things, um, but but we. I ask that it's that you would do the ministry that your word intended to do. That you would do the work that you want to do in this place, and help me to just be your tool, Lord, because I'm sinful and um, a lot of times I worry about. Uh, how it may sound or if I said the right thing or not, but we, I, we, I ask, Lord, that you just do your work here uh, this morning, this afternoon, God, and minister to those that need ministering, equip those that need equipping, and we ask that you lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, so Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, com to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, its slavery to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only the creation, uh, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. For in hope, uh, waiting eagerly for our redemption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Sorry, I had a different translation, so I was reading off the screen. Um, so in our passage today, Paul acknowledges and addresses the suffering that we go through, the suffering of the present time. And at the time, the people he was writing to, the Christians in Rome, were going through tremendous suffering through persecution for their faith, for having to be followers, for being followers of Jesus. They were thrown to the lions, uh, burned to death, uh, heads were chopped off. And so Paul, addressing the suffering that, that, they, that, they, that they have endured, that they're going through for being followers of Jesus. And Paul not only has this suffering in mind for faith, but suffering in general, recognizing that we live in a broken and, and fallen world. There's injury, sickness, natural disaster, poverty, and hunger. And so what does he encourage the church in Rome to do? What does he encourage the church today to do? Uh, what do we put our faith in, or how do we have faith? How do we have hope in the midst of this suffering? Uh, what will get us through Hurricane Harvey? And we start with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so... Uh, though we suffer now, there's a future glory. So Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul is um, giving us uh, how to uh, endure the suffering. That this suffering, this temporary present day suffering shall pass and something eternal and glorious awaits. Something far better at Christ's return, our complete transformation to a state of splendor, radiance, and magnificence, and beauty is coming. The glory is coming. Perfection is coming. Redemption, restoration of this fallen world is coming. Healing is coming. And so imagine Paul is holding a balance, a uh, balance. Uh, 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 a, a, we call it a, a scale, a balanced scale, right, where there's two plates and there's something in the middle and, you know, you see what's, what's heavier, right? Uh, imagine uh, Paul is holding this balance with two pans on each side. In one pan, he places our present suffering. In the other, the future glory. Present suffering, future glory. And he says the pan in which the glory has been deposited outweighs the other one by so much that 
the heavier pan just drops automatically, quickly, immediately to the bottom, right? So uh, our present sufferings, be they ever so many and severe and painful and real, fade into puniness, smallness, and nothingness when compared with the glory that is to be revealed. The glory that is to be revealed is so much weightier, far better than the present suffering. And so that is how he's asking us, encouraging us to view the suffering in light of the future glory. Because, you know, you can put anything else, you can put something else in that pan. You have your present suffering. That's true for all of us. One day all of us will, will suffer. But then what you want to put in that pan uh, to compare it or to go through that suffering is really up to you. The passage here encourages us to view suffering compared in light of the future glory, the weight and the, and the, and the awesomeness of the future glory. But what do you have in that opposite pan of opposite to your suffering? Do you have something to cling on to, to put your faith in that is so marvelous and far outweighs your present suffering that your suffering will one day be far forgotten because the glory is so good? What is your faith in? What are you clinging to to go through your suffering? You can put your faith in God and his promises or put your faith in something else. But both requires faith. To put it in God or to put it in something else, you're, 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 still taking, you're still activating faith in something, you know. Believing in God or not believing God, both are risks. But I challenge you, by not believing in God, does that make the suffering go away? Maybe temporarily, but the problem of suffering still exists and you just end up Dealing it with different things to put in there. How am I going to deal with the suffering here? What's going to outweigh it? It doesn't make the problem of suffering easier if you choose not to believe in God because that problem is still there. So according to this passage, let's believe in the future glory in light of our present suffering. So what does it teach about our, this future glory? What does this passage teach about teach us about the future glory. This glory is the, the glory that we groan for, that all creation and we ourselves groan for it because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. So the glory, the future glory is glory that we groan for because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Secondly, it's the glory that is for our good. It's the glory that's for our good because we're not the way we're supposed to be. And thirdly, it's the glory that is our hope. It's the glory that is our hope because the way it's supposed to be, indeed, that day will come. All right, so first, the glory that we groan for because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Right? So it says, all creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All creation waits with this longing for this glory, the revealing. And, that, and this glory is about the revealing of the sons of God, right? The, the glory of the children of God. And it says creation waits for it. Creation 
was subjected to futility, uselessness, emptiness, decay, spoiledness. The creation was subjected to that, and now it's waiting to be set free from that slavery, that corruption, to obtain freedom. The whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. If we go to Genesis chapter 3, uh, as a result of the, the fall, Adam and Eve's sin, the world and all humanity was subject to total depravity, corruption, and decay because of, this, because of the fall, because of sin, and, and, and Adam and Eve choosing to be their own God and running away from the true God, sin entered the world and messed up everything. And so it says here, God says to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So even creation is, is, is subject to, uh, to this decay and this corruption. And so creation eagerly awaits for the freedom, the, its own redemption to be the way it was supposed to be. And I think that's maybe even why we have natural disasters. We have famine. We have these things because creation is not the way it's supposed to be. And it groans for that day when this pain will end, as if being in uh, the pains of childbirth, he says, the groans of, of, go, of going, being in labor, giving birth. I've never given birth, but I've witnessed two of them, my own children. And uh, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain that I can see. <laughs> a lot of pain. But in the end, there's this, but there's this hope. There's this joy. So the, the, the groaning has, has pain. Ugh! That's, not, that's not a good one. But you, 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 can, you know what I mean. The groaning has pain, but the groaning has hope. Get this child out of me so I can hold this child and see what it was all worth for. All nine months was worth having this new life. So we groan in pain and we groan in hope. And that is what creation is doing. The pain of corruption and sin, but the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. So creation waits for this. And the passage also says that at that time, there will be a revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God. At Christ's return, God will show all the world who his sons are. The complete restoration and redemption of his children. That's what we wait for. And, and when he uses the word sons of God, it's not about gender. You know, boys are better. Nothing like that. Right? We're all e we're equal in value and worth before God. But why does he say the sons of God? Because at the time, sons had legal standing of receiving the inheritance from the father, right? So when he says 
the revealing of the sons of God, he's talking about all his children who will have that position of receiving the inheritance. It's positional. God will reveal these men and women, his children, who are my heirs, who have been adopted by me, who are my children, and the work has been done. And his revealing of his sons will show how much he loves his children, how much he takes pride in his children, and he'll reveal them publicly, these are mine. Just as when Jesus was being baptized by John, the heavens opened and God said, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. And he was proud. It's like, this is my son. And that day will come, and, and we, creation groans for that day because when that day comes, creation knows, therefore, redemption comes as well. Their restoration comes as well. And the passage also says that we who have the first fruits groan inwardly as well. We groan, not only creation, but we groan as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan in pain and in hope. We groan in our suffering. But we groan for what is to come, that there's much, much more in store for us. The first fruits of the Spirit is what we have. It's the, the, the best crops, right, in the Old Testament, when we offered the first fruits, it was the best of the crops, the foretaste of the rest of the harvest. We offered, they offered it to God. And so God, in the same way, offers to us the best, the, for, the foretaste of all his blessing by giving us his spirit, his indwelling presence and power, the taste of salvation in all its fullness is that we can begin to experience, experience that, but it's the foretaste, it's the, it's the first fruits of what is to come, that there's much more in store for God's children at Christ's return. And we groan for that day when we'll be fully united with our Father. We'll have the full blessing and, and treasures and the riches of God. So we groan for this glory as a result of the suffering and pain from sin and the brokenness of the world. We're, we're angry and heartbroken over the suffering from Harvey. The deaths, the loss of homes, the clothes, the loss of clothes and cars and valuables. We groan over those losses. Even those who don't believe in God sense that Harvey is horribly wrong and unfair. Even unbelievers feel that it's right that we help one another, that we come together, that we're Texas strong. Even unbelievers would give up their, their time and their resources and lives to rescue people, to donate food and shelter and clothing. Why is this? Because There's this groaning, there's this knowledge that there's something more than this. This is evidence for the reality of God and a supernatural standard by which even non-believers make their judgment of what is wrong and what is right, that life is not the way it's supposed to be, and that there's a longing for how the world should be. 
even if non-believers are sensing that this is not right. This can't go on. We need to help. We need to, we need to restore. We need to, uh, to come together. It's evidence that there is something greater. Because where does that come from other than a supernatural standard of what is to be? And so it's okay to groan for this glory out of pain. It's okay to groan for this glory out of hope for a redeemed and restored world. We ought to groan. We ought to groan for it points us to our future glory. It's okay to groan in pain and frustration because it tells us inside that something's not right and there's something more to come. There's something else out there. The glory of God and his redeemed and restored world. The next thing that we can equip ourselves with to have faith in these times is the glory that is for our good. That this glory is, is not only what we groan for because the world is not the way it's supposed to be, but this glory is for our good because we're not the way we're supposed to be. The glory is for our good. If we read further down uh, the passage, it says in verse um, 28, we know that for those who love God and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. What is that good? It is our glorification, our perfection, our redemption, the glory that is for our good, that God works for that. All things are working for that. Your suffering, your joys, everything that you've experienced in life is working for that good. Every circumstance event in your life, work together for good, for your glorification, so that you can be the way you were created and designed to be, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. You know, the, the way people argue uh, against the existence, existence of God is that the Bible says that God is all-powerful and all-good. But if he's all-powerful, then why not stop suffering? Maybe he's not good enough. But if he's all good, then why not prevent suffering? Maybe he's not powerful enough. And so because there is suffering in the world, then he's either not good or he's not powerful, so therefore God does not exist. The all-powerful and all-good God of the Bible does not exist. But this argument has a limited definition of what is good. The atheist who uses this argument says that what is good simply means that we shouldn't suffer. It's a limited definition of what is good. Good equals not suffering. But it's an, un it's an unfair argument. 
Because you have to allow for the possibility that there's another definition of what is good that we may not know of, that our limited minds cannot understand. And that allowing suffering is how God works that good in us and for us. Just because we don't see the good, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And God promises that he's at work for good for those who love him, who are caught according to his purpose. All things work for good, he says, even though we don't know what it might be, even though we don't see it, that suffering can be used. He can turn it into something good. And what does good mean? We go back into Genesis again. When God created the world, he said, the light was good. The day and night were good. The sun and the moon were good. The seas and the sky were good. All the animals that filled them were good. The land, the vegetation was good. All the animals that walked the land were good. Finally, God made man, and he looked at everything he created and saw that it was very good. And that definition of good is that the quality of everything was the way it was supposed to be. Excellent. The performance of everything, the way it was supposed to be. Everything worked the way it was supposed to be. The quality, the performance, the character, the characteristics and the actions, the functions. And so he says, God works everything for our good, for those who love God. For those he foreknew, he predestined, he conformed to the image of his son. He chose you, he called you, he justified you, and he glorified you. And everything in those gaps and in between, in that order of salvation, is working together for good. Your glorification. And, God, and, 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 and Paul is so sure and confident and secure that this is guaranteed that he writes glorified in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. For those he predestined, he called, justified, and glorified, as if it already happened. Nothing can take that away. Because further on in Romans it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from this glory, this good that he has predestined for us. Shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No accuser, Satan, nor any circumstances of tropical storms or hurricanes or any sin or accusations of guilt all of those things shrivel in stature alongside the risen Christ who is interceding for us. Paul makes the testimony of the psalmist his own. In all these things, he says, that could seem to defeat God's people, 
God and his chosen ones whom he loves remain united and inseparable now and forevermore. That glory that is being worked, all things are being worked for that, for you and for me, even Hurricane Harvey and the suffering that we go through. Nothing will take away the love of God and his promise to bring us into glory, into full redemption as sons. And the last thing I share is the glory is our hope. The glory is our hope because everything will be the way it's supposed to be. Our suffering will end. For this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what are you putting on that balance scale? Something you see on this earth? Have we already arrived yet? Is this all that there is in this present life? Is this all there is to live for? What are you putting on that balance scale? Something you see that's right in front of you? Is that, is that all? Have we arrived at that? But it says, no, we hope for something far beyond our vision and imagination and expectation. It's not here yet, but it's coming, and there's more to come. That is our hope. That one day God is going to renovate and restore not only our souls, not only our physical bodies, but the entire cosmos. All will be put right. Eden will be restored. This globe will become what it was always meant to be. And I want to end with just this article that I came across. Very beautifully written. I think we can all relate. It reads, you've seen the pictures, you've heard the reports, you've counted the deaths, and, and you've watched a city become an island. But living here, living through it, has become for me a life-altering experience. As a writer, I've always communicated best through the written word. That's why I feel the need to tell you, from an insider's perspective, what it's like to be a Texan recovering from the nation's worst hurricane on record. Harvey was like nothing I've ever experienced. It was days on end of round-the-clock tornado warnings, sirens, and alarms, followed by rescue helicopters, news choppers, and ambulances. It was staying awake at night until we couldn't hold our eyes open another minute and then waking in fear of what we would find. It was streets that became rivers and the constant thought that you couldn't leave your house under any circumstance. That does something to a person to know you're trapped. Every time... My husband ate something. I'd worry we'd run out of food. Ironically, a week later, all of Houston is lamenting the Harvey 15, the 15 pounds each of us gained eating comfort food day after day out of boredom, stress, and, well, the need to be comforted. We experienced Harvey fatigue and oppressive exhaustion, TV fatigue, where every station broadcasts all Harvey all the time, medical fatigue, the knowledge that there wasn't a single doctor's office, hospital, or ER op open should we have a chest pain or injure ourselves in the flood. 
I'll never forget watching CNN helicopters over Sugarland on TV while looking out the window at those same choppers passing over my house. And I'll never forget the Black Hawk helicopters flying in pairs, heading to another rescue. It sounded and felt like a war zone. As a flooded friend of mine said, there are things you want to remember and things you want to forget. He doesn't want to remember looking up at the ceiling of his family room and seeing the dappled reflection of the motion of water on his floor. He wants to remember that Harvey showed us what friendship and compassion look like, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, what it's like to leave your own mess to help those with bigger messes. I've had a lump in my throat for a week. First from anxiety, then from fear, then from devastation, then from compassion. And now, as the world has reached out to help us, as we have stopped everything to help those around us, the lump in my throat is from joy. Harvey wasn't just a hurricane. It was an emotional roller coaster that is still taking us all for a ride. The beauty after devastation is the greatest beauty of them all. It's the beauty that reminds us that pain and suffering do pass. That if given the opportunity, most people will step up and help in every way they can, with no concern whatsoever about race, religion, gender, or ethnicity. Those things cease to matter, and we find ourselves wondering why they ever did. I love Texas, but I want to believe that this generosity of spirit extends well beyond our Texas borders. I want to believe that when disaster strikes, the good that comes from it reminds us of the tenacity of the human spirit and the compassion of most hearts. We are Texas strong. I want to believe we can be America strong. But most of all, I want to believe this, that politics, race, and divisiveness can be washed away in the flood that physically devastated but emotionally resurrected not just Houston not just Texas, but the world. She longs for a better Houston, a better Texas, a better America, a better world. And it's possible, but not just because we hope in that kind of a world, but because we believe in the one who can make it happen. That world is possible and will one day come because Jesus so loved you and me. He came to save us from a life in a world of decay, bondage, and death. So he entered our world of suffering and took upon himself the worst possible suffering we could have had the wrath for our sins, the penalty and punishment for our guilt. He paid the penalty in full and rose again and sits at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ, our Savior, will one day return. It's because Jesus gave up his life and entered our suffering and so loved you and me that he came to put an end to that suffering. He took our death. He took our hell. He took our shame. So that suffering can end without God having to end us. He is our Savior. He is Jesus. And through him and only through him, we have this hope of a new heaven and new earth, a perfect kingdom, a restoration of all that you've always wanted. 
that every horrible thing that has ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much that we may not know the answer to why. But we know that the answer is not because you don't love us. Because you do. And you showed us by sending Jesus. And because of the cross, because of the resurrection, we can make it through. Because we have evidence of your love, that you care about this world. You care about us. You've come to rescue us, that you will one day make all things new. Thank you, Jesus. Let us cling to you. The glory that far outweighs the present suffering, that that suffering becomes nothingness, insignificant compared to the glory that is to come. Let us hold on in that faith and what you've accomplished. Thank you so much. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting. May we hold on to this hope. May we pass on this hope. May we live out this hope as a church. May we represent this coming kingdom so that this hope may be for Houston. That all will turn to you, God. Use us, lead us, and work in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray.